Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's one-on-one podcast. Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Matan faculty member Rabbanit Yafid Kleimer to speak about Parshat Yitro and about Franz Rosenzweig's idea of revelation. Yafid, it's great to have you here. Thank you very much, Yosefa. Happy to be here. Okay, take us right in. I'm going to quote from the, from the beginning of Parashat Yitro, or, or the middle, before we start with Matan Torah. Um, the Torah says in the beginning of chapter 20, And Franz Rosenzweig, and that caught my eye many, many years ago. He's, uh, he's saying, it, it, it was written actually to a letter that he wrote to, uh, to his friend, to his good friend Martin Buber. And he says, Matan Torah is not the revelation. The revelation is the revelation. The content, what comes after, is just the interpretation of the revelation. But just by the word Vayomer, Vayered, and Anochi, this is, uh, this is the revelation. And, and after I, you know, the first time I saw it, it caught my eye and I said, okay, I have to go deep into that idea of revelation in, uh, Rosenzweig's, um, philosophy. Um, and I think that in, it, to, in order to understand him, in order to understand his, his explanation, his, his philosophy, his, his Torah reading, we have to say a few words about him because he was a very unusual character. He was a very, un, he had a very unusual life. He was born in, in Germany in 1886, uh, to, um, um, a family of Jews who kept nothing, you know, nothing. They were very assimilated. Um, and the only, his only connection to an Orthodox religion, to Judaism or to tradition Judaism was that the, the, the brother of his grandfather who lived with, with them and he used to, to teach him, uh, Jewish ideas. And surprisingly enough, when he was 13, his gift, he asked for a gift from his parents, classes in Hebrew. He wanted to learn, uh, he wanted to learn Hebrew. Um, at 1905, he started, uh, um, medicine in, in Germany. And then he switched after two years to philosophy and history. Um, and he started writing his thesis on 1908 on Hegel, Hegel and the state. But then something happens and he goes into the first world war as a, as a German soldier, um, in 1930 and in 1913, he starts um, um, a process uh, of uh, getting closer to religious life. But he, and he says, I believe in God, but I think Christianity is the right religion. Uh, and he goes, and, 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 and then uh, something happened. And that's a big question amongst the, his biographers and, and, his, uh, you know, and, and the scholars, what really happened? But the story he tells is that he went before he became before he became Christian, he went to a an Orthodox shul on Yom Kippur, and he says that he felt some kind of revelation. And he comes out of the shul and he comes out of this this experience. And after three months, not only that he didn't, you know, he didn't become Christian, but he became a bit he became more Jewish. He started to keep more 
um, mitzvot and starting to learn Torah very, um, you know, very uh, intensely. Um, and when he went to, to war in 1914, uh, as, as a Jewish soldier who already decided to become more Jewish, he started writing um, his thoughts on, on postcards that he used to send back to his, his parents and his friends. And when he came back from the war, he collected all these ideas um, and he put them together into a book. And the book came out in 1921 and he called it The Star of Redemption. And the Star of Redemption is like, is, you know, it's like his second name now today. When we talk about Rosenzweig, we say the Star of Redemption. And the Star of Redemption, he, um, he paints a, a fascinating idea um, where he, you know, we need to imagine uh, a Magen David, you know, has six kodim, six, six corners, six angles. And three of the, the, the first triangle is God, word, God, world, and, and, and human beings. And the other triangle is creation, revelation, and redemption. And what, when, and what Rosenzweig is saying is that that's the map to understand the world. I'm just going to clarify for all those who are listening, and they don't have a picture in front of them, that he basically took the Magen David and divided its two triangles, separated the yes. two triangles from each other. Okay, so it sort of has, it's a bilayered. Uh, star, uh, and so that first star is that God, uh, word and world and man, and then the the revelation redemption, um, that that second yes. that second triangle. So imagine those two the two parts of them again. David are now yes. separated. In Thank your mind. you. Um, and what he said was that revelation was was a big drama that happened in relationship between God and, and human beings, where the God God is active and we are passive. And redemption is a drama between uh, people and uh, the world where we are active and the world is passive. And creation is a drama between God and the world. You know, God is active and the world is, is, is passive, which leaves us people. We have the only, we are the only part in this triangle that are also passive and active. We're passive uh, in the relationship between us and God in Revelation, but we're active in, in the relationship between us and the world, which we, we are, we are the, um, the active part. And in his idea of Revelation, he says that when God speaks to us, when God decides to reveal himself to, to the world, it's an act of love. And in this act of love, um, uh, God tells us that he would like us to love him back throughout the revelation and throughout the love that he's, um, that he's showing us. The other thing that he was saying about, um, about the, the revelation and maybe, maybe that it's worth saying that, um, Hugo Bergman who was studying Jewish philosophy and he wrote very, very important book about the philosophers of the modern world. And he will also, um, you know, teaching and learning uh, about Jewish philosophers. And he really liked Rosenzweig. But he said that Rosenzweig was the anti-intellectual trend in Jewish thought. And, and it's, and it's resonate exactly with what Rosenzweig was saying that he said, religion doesn't have to prove us anything. Religious, we need to approach the world with faith. And if we look at the world with faith, this is, this is the basis for philosophy and this is the basis for being people 
being human beings in the world. And, and because he was, because he was so intensely focused on faith and belief and not on facts, he, he actually left uh, the academia saying, uh, academia is, is, is doing nothing to help the world. And, and you just, you know, you're just talking about things very artificially and externally and you leave the inside, you leave the heart. And he, he was saying that education is the most important thing. So part of what he was trying to, 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 to teach, uh, as an, as an educator is that the, the revelation that started in Sinai, in our parasha, it's not a one thing, one time thing that happened in the past. And now it's just an ongoing, uh, we're, we're just in a ongoing continuity of the, of the revelation. He says that revelation happens, you know, can happen to human, to, to individual every time that we are making room for God, you know, to talk to us. And the revelation is not just an act in the past, but it's an, it's an, it's a thing that happens in the presence. He says that the you know, revelation to the soul is an experience of the present. It stands in the past, but it doesn't dwell there in the past. The revelation actually asks us to look forward in it. In, we are in the present. We're experiencing revelation and we need to follow the light of uh, the face of God into the future. The revelation that happened in the present, this is something that we can teach each and each of, each of us to do. And, and it's, it's actually another, another act of love also that we feel from God and, and that we keep between people. So it's really interesting because just to, Go back to his biography for a moment. I mean, his book is called The Star of Redemption. There's something a little bit uh, shooting star-like about his life. I mean, he really mm-hmm. also sort of became, I think, of sort of like a phoenix. You know, he burst <laughs> onto the scene, and he also had a, a pretty horrible way that he left this world from a terrible neurological disease. He died very young. Um, even after his demise really started uh, deteriorating, he still wrote and taught for eight years after that. So he, he has his... The burst of of creative energy and clearly spiritual potential of him as an individual has this really uh, meaningful and fascinating parallel also in his life trajectory. Um, obviously, they're they're intertwined in ways that we can't really understand. But I'm curious, what you know? You said that when you first read it, you were sort of you were so taken aback. And uh, what of his philosophy was something that really caught you? I Meaning, what was that moment? I'm asking now a personal question. What was that mm-hmm. moment for you in your life that you said, "I have to know more about this"? What 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 was it about his writing? Yeah. Well, first of all, it was this part that you just mentioned about this this detail about his, uh, his biography that stunned me. In other words, that, that you know, the guy just you know started learning. Uh, uh, what it is to be Jewish, and he becomes a, becomes the friend of the of, of the most impo- uh, important uh, German Jews at the time, Martin Buber and and uh, Hermann Cohen. He actually started to translate the Bible to Germany together with Martin Buber, and he didn't finish because he died before, and, and Buber uh, finished it before him. But the idea that he lived for forty three years, and he had such a shift in his life. Because of something that he calls revelation, and that revelation became uh, the main story of his life. The other thing that caught my attention was the fact that he was—he talked so much about the words, words. Okay, God. When God turned to human beings at the first time, he says, "Ayeka." 
okay? And, and Adam and Chava don't really talk back to God. They just, you know, try to escape. Uh, and, and, and Rosenzweig is saying God, is, God wants a dialogue. And he's looking for the person that he calls, he'll ask him, Ayeka, and that person will say, Hineni, here I am. And that person was Avraham. And that was the beginning of the dialogue between God and people. Right. If you, if you go back to that first story, though, just to interrupt for a moment, if you go back to that story, so God, of course, says, Ayeka, where are you? And he's not asking a geographical question. He's asking something obviously much deeper because he knows where they physically are. And Adam and Chava, in that tragic moment, which is perhaps the much greater sin than what they actually did initially run that, you know, they, they run away from, from taking responsibility and the right. Whenever I teach that passage, right. You, you always ask what was supposed to be their answer. Mm-hmm. And the answer was supposed to be Hineni. I'm here. I take responsibility. Yes. I know what I've done. Okay. That always mitigates tremendously what people have done. And when they choose to run away from it, it makes it so much worse. And, and what you're pointing to is that the first time we actually get that correct answer is from Avraham Avinu when he says, in any to God's call to him. You're absolutely right, but I think that, and again, then in Har Sinai, you know, God is talking and, and, and we're afraid to talk to him, right? We're afraid to hear his voice and we ask Moshe to be the mediator between us and, and, and Moshe continues. But the idea that Rosenzweig puts so much, so much emphasis about, about words, about talking, about a dialogue, about he, he called he said that the ancient world and the mythologies were based on silence and on and being mute. And then the revelation in the Torah is the first time that, that we use words to, to talk to people and to express, to express feelings. And, that, and, and just to know that he lost the ability to talk. Mm. Because of his neurological disease. Because, because, of, yeah. because of his ALS. And and he was paralyzed. He couldn't, he couldn't, uh, first he couldn't move and then he couldn't talk. And he used his eyes to, to tell his, to tell his wife, you know, what words he would like her to write. And he continued to write even, even after. And I think it's an example of a person that, that took the idea of revelation that he can experience every, every day again and again and words you know, that if you can say them, you know, with your mouth, you, you express them in a different way and also pray. You know, it also reminds me of, of the earliest Midrashic interpretations on the Torah, where we, we look at the first parak of Sefer Breshit and we say, Oh, God, God creates the world. We think about it as sort of almost this physical act. Um, it is. Uh, but Chazal points out, of course, that there is not much physical about it, that God creates the world. Now you could figure out how to, how to, where, where to find those 10, uh, 10 commandments. But the point is that Chazal points out that God didn't need to physically do anything. He's so, omnipotent, that he could just create the world with words, but you're bringing to it Rosenzweig's much more, I think, meaningful interpretation than just saying, you know, God created it with words. I think Chazal may have been intending something to this effect, something to this effect, but there's something in those words that started at the creation of the world, and then they continue at the point of revelation when God ultimately makes us sort of co-creators with him. Um, and that's a really, it's a really beautiful idea to think about the fact that creation ha- happens through words, and therefore it's something that isn't limited in time, and that it continues to keep happening. Yes, in, in the echo, you know, the echo of the word, the words that, that, that God is, is using to create the world. And, and it was also connected to what Rosenzweig was telling, because many of his uh, German friends and, and also relatives that, 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 uh, that became Christian used to tell him, 
we cannot believe you start you started believing in God. What do you mean you believe in God? And what do you come back to you know come back to university and and do some real stuff with us? And he said it, it was so again so brave. We're talking about you know really early early twentieth century, and he said you know. The revelation that I believe in is, is, is not, I, I don't need to prove it, not, not metaphysically and not empirically. I, for me, the revelation is there because I know it inside of myself. I feel it inside of me. And I don't need a, cognit- a, a cognitive uh, uh, assurance in that. I have the vada'ut. The certainty. The certainty inside of me that I'm longing to something which is there. And for me, it's God. And for me, and because I can talk to God, and because God made me an active person in the world, I, I, I don't need to prove to you anything, and, and which is a very, very courageous thing. Right. It's also interesting because in those times, okay, thinking about if you were in academia, which is still true to a certain degree sometimes today, yes. but there's a very clear break between the academic trajectory and the practical life that you live. And also in the, obviously in the religious and cultural milieu that he was living in, the way that people practice Judaism versus the way they practice Christianity were, yes. were ways where he felt that obviously that belief level and the action level, uh, certainly obviously, you know, post, post, post enlightenment, uh, that those, that those trajectories were not meeting each other. And it makes me think about the world we live in today. Where you can be a perfectly religious philosopher, meaning I'm sure everybody in a philosophical track has to go through that sort of mm-hmm. internal journey at some point. But but we live in a world, in a, I think, in a largely positive way where there's things aren't as bifurcated anymore. So you can be you can be doing both. You could be a philosopher and also want to be teaching things that are offering practical meaning. Uh, and I certainly hope that there are many people leading lives that are not simply halachic or action-based, but are simultaneously faith-based. Yes, I, I think that's definitely something we all need to aspire to. And you used to say that when you're in university, you have to, you have to follow certain, certain uh, rules. And you actually are not free to experience rede- uh, re- revelation. But when you, ha- when you know that you can also be in academia, and, and today, as you said, Thank God. I mean, we, we enjoy both the fruit of the academia and the research and learning and a deep learning of Torah. And, um, and, and, and we can, and we can still in, in our teaching feel that if we, if we're open to it, we can, we can, we can feel the revelation. Many times I feel that the, what's happening in the class, you know, when I teach women, youngster, men and women, doesn't matter. We take, we take the Torah's ideas and there's something in the air, which is, Maybe what Am Israel felt in Mahamad al-Sinai, I don't know, but there's a feeling of something bigger than us and meaningful, but not far away, something we can, we can take to our life, in our personal life, and do something with it. And, and by the way, when he left the academia, he, uh, and because he said education is the, is the most important thing, he, he opened uh, a seminary for educa- for Jewish education. That was the Lehrer House. That was that. I'm not sure about the name, but it, it was we like created a, like this think an, tank, and that's where you know Boober would hang out. Also today, there's a little yeah. A it's slight, an open. He called yeah, it an, an open, open an open Jewish uh, school for learning. Something with, mm-hmm. with, with the yeah. word open was that was important for him. Yeah. If 
Faith, why don't we flesh this idea out a little bit more clearly, this idea of, of revelation and, and the significance of the words that are used? Yeah, okay. It is a very significant part in his, in his philosophy, and, and it will also take us to, to tefillah, to, to prayer. So mm-hmm. what Rosenzweig is saying is that in, in, our, in that pre-world that we're talking about with, with mythologies and, and, and polytheism, even in the Greek uh, aspect that was you know, considered to be more, more advanced, it's a world without words. It's a mute world. And, and even the heroes, he says, the heroes of the, of the big tragedies, it's, it's the human being that stands uh, speechless in front of the, the, the mightiness of the world, the wrath of the, of the, of the gods. And what Rosenzweig is saying, when we get to revelation and when God decides to turn to the world, to turn to people, first of all, we have a beginning of a, of, of a relationship between God and the world. And we also have a dialogue between, between God and the world and that pre, and that pre-world what, that was death and, and, and mute, or, or he used, Rosenzweig uh, used the words of, uh, the words of Nietzsche. You know, that there were all the heroes are close inside themselves because there's no need to talk to the gods to ask for their mercy. Mm-hmm. And, and what Rosenzweig is saying is that, yes, before, before revelation, the world lacked the words. The yeah, word there was lacked, no dialogue. There was no there was, dialogue. There was between, no dialogue. Yes, yeah. there was no dialogue. It was very, let's say there was existentially, it was a very lonely, lonely world. Mm-hmm. And now when man steps into, into the scene, when God, when God talks to him, that is, a, is, first of all, Rosenzweig says it's a real miracle. It's a miracle and we need to remember it, that God decided to talk to us and turn, turn to us with, you know, with, uh, with the Ayeka that, uh, that, we, that we talked before. In other words, the potential of the revelation and the redemption of the, of the tongue, of the speech, of the, of the language was there since creation. But God waited with it, you know, mm-hmm. till, till there was someone who was willing to turn to him and, and, uh, and start a, start a conversation. And, and then it, it moved into, you know, into the, the, Mahmad uh, Har Sinai, when God is talking to entire nation. And how does he envision prayer, uh, yes. in this conception of the world? Yes, yes. He says that the highest expression, even he, he said the perfection of the soul, he says, is, is pray. Because in prayer, um, it, it's not that, that we ask ourselves, uh, is my prayer going to be answered? You know, praying itself is it. You know, when I stand and pray, when I turn to God and say whatever words I am saying, my ability, the ability of a, of a human being, flesh and blood, to stand in front of the Almighty and talk to Him, regardless to it, whether I will hear an answer, that itself is, is a moment of revelation. And that is what prayer is. And it doesn't matter if it's a liturgic prayer or a personal prayer, but it's the opportunity or the permission that God gives us to turn to him. And, and, and as human beings, we, we can experience the revelation through tefillah more than anything else. And he really, really, he, he goes on and on to talk about prayer, you know, the ability the, the even the, the I would say the instruction that we will pray is an instruction out of love because God knows that the more we will feel that we can turn to God and and be engaged in a conversation with God, our life will be more let's say stable. 
and I, our life will be more uh, more meaningful. And he really, really liked uh, uh, davening in shuls. By the way, yeah, he, he many many times he talks about the experience that um, the common experience of being in 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 a pray in a, in shul with other with other people that uh, we can both feel the togetherness of you know of matan torah as a people but we also feel the personal experience of it's me with my own personal words towards god and uh, he goes on and on about uh, what tefillah what prayer can actually give uh, give us as people it's 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 full of uh, the, the prayer has the power to remind us that we are being loved and then you know and then to love back i think that some people find themselves in in rote routines of prayer uh and i think that there's two points here that are that are comforting and meaningful. One is that engaging itself in prayer, e- even if it's rote, is engaging in an ongoing act of revelation, meaning that dialogue with God, even if right now you're not saying anything totally genius, or you're not saying anything that is particularly, um, that you don't find meaningful, but it, it, it means that you're actively engaged in the relationship. It's, I think it's like also a really nice practical idea for someone who's, you know, had another tefillat shacharit and it's a little bit rote or it's okay. Meaning that's, it's continuing to be part of that, of that dialogue. Um, but what he's also saying is that when you're able to make it personal, uh, that, that is obviously bringing the revelation to, to an even higher level. You know, I, I keep thinking also in my head and I'm trying to figure out a, a, a good place to say it, but I just, just this week I'm reading a bit of Heschel for something else that I'm working on. And I think that if you talk about a moment where you read something in philosophy and you're sort of astounded and you stop for a moment and you say, Okay, that I'm so happy that I read that because now my life is forever changed. Um, but just the concept, and I just feel like it, it, it fits in here. And if I knew more about philosophy, I might understand the relationship between Rosenzweig and Heschel from an academic perspective. <laughs> but where he talks about this idea that God, you know, seeks man, right? That God, God uh, searches searches man out in the world, and that idea also, I think, is is a beautiful complement to what we're saying because it both he speaks about it there also with the sh- with the question of Ayeka, right? That God first turns to man. We always think of oh, I'm the needy one, right? I have to turn to God with all of my dis- with all my requests, and God has to sort of figure out how to you know catalog all of that and answer us all. Um, but but in his writing. Yeah. Uh, in his sort of magnum opus as well, he says, no, God turns to us, meaning the relationship actually starts with God. And, and, and certainly also when we, you know, when we study Shira Shirim and look at it metaphorically, the, the dod, the, the male character is just as active as the woman, right? It's not, it's not just a, I'm turning to God to help me, you know, mm-hmm. do well or pass my test or whatever the, que- whatever the request is, but it's, it's this real, uh, it's a relationship based on dialogue and reciprocity. Uh, and, and this idea that, right, that it's initiated Yes. by God is also coming through in what we're saying here. Obviously, Rosenzweig was before him. But. It's so interesting that you mentioned Shira Shirim because one of my favorite midrashim in Shira Shirim Rabbah is that Rabbi Yochan and the Chachamim are trying to understand wait, how did it work that God spoke and, and everyone heard? Like, how did it work? And, Rabbi Yoch, and they actually ask it about the kiss. How did, you know, Shira Shirim, Shakenim in Shikot Piu, you will kiss me. How did it really happen? And Rabbi Yochanan is saying... And there they understand the kiss as revelation, yes, just yes, filling in the gaps. Yes. How does it action? And Rabbi Yochanan is saying that the words of God, mm-hmm. each word was flying to each and every one of Am Yisrael and stood in front of him and said, would you accept me as your God? And the person says yes, and he got a kiss from the word 
from the from the word of God. And I think it's so beautiful. And I think this is what Rosenzweig is trying to say. I mean, even though it was a re revelation in front of the entire people, and it has reasons for that, each and every one experienced the revelation as if he was talking to 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 him. And it reminds me of a story, um, if uh, a story about about uh, about Rav Zaks. Rav Zaks is is is, um, is telling that you know um, for, the, for the first time he uh, visited Auschwitz, and he saw you know how how the Nazi were so. Um, diligent and organized and kept everything, you know, uh, everything was kept and the clothes and the, and the, uh, the shoes. And, and at the beginning of the, of the shift to Auschwitz, they also kept pictures. They, they took a picture of everyone that came and he saw pictures of, of the kids and he broke into tears and he asked God and he said, God, where were you? And then he says, and all of a sudden I heard these words from inside of me saying, Uh, and then Reverend Sachs stopped and he says in brackets and says, I don't say I got a revelation from God. But after everything we said, I, I always wanted to tell Reverend Sachs, yes, you did. You got a revelation <laughs> from God because it, it connects also to Rev. Cook. Rev. Cook is saying that, you know, the word of God today is, is what is, is the inside of us. If we can really listen to that, you know, to some, to words that are speaking from inside of us. And Rabbi Sachs is saying, it wasn't a revelation, but I heard a voice from inside of me saying, where was I? I was in the command, which is also in our parasha, mm -hmm. and a command, you know, don't oppress the, the ger. And, and, and I understood that God says, if people are not willing to hear each other and listen to each other, I'm, I will also not listen and not hear, not hear them. I will stay mute. And God is giving us the freedom Um, you know, to, to, to how to use a relationship between people. And, and that is so beautifully, beautifully fit with, with, with Rosenzweig is like, is how do we, since God is, is eager to talk to us, you know, so to speak and listen and hear our words back, but that should be, we should copy this and we should learn from that. It should be a lesson also to how to talk to people, you know, to listen to mm. the words of people and really listen to the words of people And, and, and answer them and, and acknowledge their, their existence. And that's another way of, you know, walking in the, in the footsteps of God in terms of that. You know, just to, just to conclude this beautiful conversation, I really, I hear in, in the combination of the way we've portrayed his personal story and this tiny piece we're giving from his, uh, from his Torah and his philosophy that there was, there was a moment, it sounds, Uh, in, in his personal trajectory where he was astounded by the idea that not only that God could be heard, but that he could be heard. Um, that there was this profound moment of being seen. Uh, and I think that so many of us, we, if we're lucky, hopefully we experience it often, but we all live with that desire very deep inside of us to be, to be seen, to be acknowledged. And, and what he's, putting forward is this idea that God, God sees us and, and he acknowledges us and that if we're involved in this continual relationship through tefillah uh, and through continuing to be in dialogue with God, that, that we will also be able to hear and see God inside of us. And that it's like an internal sense of knowing um, that's not just a faith, but it's, it's actually being an active part of that process. Yes. I wanted to say, you know, just before we're, we're, we're ending here, Um, 
again, as I said before, I keep thinking about the way he, you know, the way he ended his life. But when he talked about, about how ill he is and death, he was actually saying a person that believes in revelation is not going to be afraid of death. Because when you keep in dialogue with God, uh, then death is, is just another, you know, just another step or another thing. It's not, it's not scary, which is another thing. I think we, we know that B'nai Israel were afraid they're going to die because they heard the voice of the voice of God. And the opposite, hearing the voice of God is, you know, what makes us alive. And Rosenzweig truly, truly lived that in his own personal life, you know, even though they were you know, not easy and he died so young. Thank you so much. It's really been an enlightening and beautiful conversation that we've been able to take really deep, complex philosophy, and I hope uh, bring some really practical points to, to people in their own personal lives. You're very welcome. Thank you, Sefa. If anyone wants to read more of Rosenzweig, again, it's it's not a simple read. It's a very dense, complex philosophical work. Uh, there are a number of English translations. Of course, there are translations from the German. Uh, we'll link them in the show notes. It's also a Hebrew translation, which we'll also link in the show notes. Uh, wishing everybody a Shabbat Shalom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.